Dr. Kevin Skinner here with you today here in studio with Dr. Shondell Knowlton and on the line we've got Dr. Jill Manning. This is uh, Pornography as I See It. Excited uh, to be here with uh, Shondell. Welcome uh, into the studio today. Good morning. Uh, good to have you with us. And uh, Dr. Jill Manning, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Great. Uh, you're calling in from uh, Colorado? That's right, the Denver area. The Denver area. Well, it's good to, good to have both of you. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about uh, these two uh, fantastic women I have in studio with me today. Both have received their Ph.D. in marriage and family therapy. Phenomenal women. That uh, They're actually working in the trenches with women and couples who are struggling with pornography and sexual addiction uh, problems in their lives. And uh, just a little bit about uh, your uh, both of you in private practice. Yes. And, uh, That's right. Working in the tre- what I call the trenches. We're <laughs> actually all three of us work in the trenches. I think we're all in private practice. Today we are going to start a, a four or five uh, session uh, series in terms of helping the women who are struggling and how to respond to their partner's sexual addiction or pornography addiction. And uh, so I just want to introduce, have you guys a little bit of introduction about yourselves, what you're doing in private practice. Go ahead, Shondell. I'm working in private practice in Farmington, Utah, and primarily I'm working with women and women's issues, depression, anxiety, dealing with sexual addiction and pornography in a spouse comes up. It comes up for men too, but I see a lot of women that's an issue in and, their lives and and uh, you've been doing this... Uh, about 10 years. About 10 years now. About 10 years. Very good. And how about you, Dr. Manning? Well, I was working in private practice in Alberta, Canada, and over a four-year period, saw a dramatic increase in the number of women that were coming forward describing a pornography-related issue in their marriage, courtship, boyfriend, whatever. And that's actually what motivated me to do my doctoral research in this area and so felt uh, a real passion for helping the women because it can be a very isolating experience and we have a tendency to zoom in on, on the person with the addictive behavior and not pay as much attention to the other circle of influence that's affected. And so I'm currently working in private practice here in the Denver area area, as well as running a sexual addiction group for couples through the Lifestar Network in Denver as well. So see the group therapy dynamic with couples and then individually with women. Fantastic. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up. I was talking with a woman the other day. Uh, I'd met with her husband two or three times, and I invited him to bring her in. And she sat down, and one of the first things she said to me was, you know, where do I start? What do I do to make it through this? Because I, I think I'm going crazy. My mind is racing. I'm going, I'm just, I can't, I can't focus. I, I'm really glad that we have the opportunity to spend some time talking about this because right now I'm really concerned that we aren't meeting the needs of the women in particular. So this is going to be a very fun topic for us to discuss today. We've actually titled it, Am I Going Crazy? Because I think one of the first things that happen when a woman discovers that her partner is dealing with pornography addiction or sexual addiction, that they say, now what do I do? Where do I start? And so my question would be to both of you is, if somebody comes in and they say to you, I don't, I'm losing my mind, what would be your initial response to them? My initial response is, that's a normal response, is to think that you're losing your mind. It's a situation that you've never been in before, that you've never confronted. There's not a lot of literature out there. Women don't talk about this. They tend to keep it to themselves. And as Dr. Manning previously stated, the help is there for the addictive problem and not much there for the spouse whose life has been turned upside down also. So we normalize, we let them know, we give them hope that there's help out there, that others are going through this, and we tell them some of the things that they may expect to feel. 
Exactly. What would you say, Dr. Manning? I echo those comments. This is so traumatic for anyone, especially women, though, who invest so much emotionally into their significant relationships. And this is more than just a crisis where I differentiate a crisis from a traumatic experience and that a crisis is something that, you know, it may be very stressful and test our limits, but we have the resources to deal and cope with it. Whereas with this experience, it's so traumatic, it can really overwhelm a woman's sense of being able to deal with it. And I think that's why some women come in feeling like they're losing their minds. And I think as Dr. Knowlton so well put, it's so important to normalize that this is a normal response to an abnormal event in a marriage relationship. And I think there's a part here that we look at the longitudinal part of this. You know, if you've been married for many years and you are finally just discovering that, that might be a different response than somebody who knew that their partner was involved in pornography prior to marriage. But now that they're realizing the problem's not going away, I think it can actually build and become even more traumatic because what they'd hoped would change is now not changing. And so there's so many different possibilities. And the question I would like to get at is, why are some people responding with a traumatic response and other people not responding with a traumatic response? You know, if you look at the research, there's a proportion of the women, in fact, a study by Steffens and Reiner, I think, what, what did she find? I think there were, of the 32 cases, 70% of the women were responding with PTSD-like symptoms. Any thoughts on that? Well, PTSD, we're seeing the symptoms of PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, without being able to diagnose PTSD until this point at least, because some of the criteria were not met, as in you're facing death. Life-threatening. A life-threatening But this is certainly lifestyle and life-altering and threatens every area, maybe particularly of a woman's life, because it affects your children, your family, your finances, in many cases your spirituality. So there is no area of a woman's life that is not turned over by this, and especially when you go into a marriage with the expectation of fidelity and commitment. To a woman, this feels like an affair or maybe even worse. A significantly life-altering experience. Right, right. I'd like to add, though, that there are situations where this truly is a life-threatening experience. If there's been acting out and unprotected sex outside of the marriage, I have met a few women who discovered their husband's problem when they went for a physical and discovered they they had a sexually transmitted disease. Or if there's marital rape, if the type of pornography and, and sexual acting out has escalated to a point that it's abusive and violent. So I just want to mention that for those women that may be out there where this truly has been a life-threatening and not just a life-altering experience for them. Absolutely. Which is a very, very important point. You know, And I would say in my clinical experience, I think on, on a very rare occasion has that occurred. But nevertheless, we know for a fact that is a common experience for some women. Well, and the fact that even if that doesn't occur, you have to deal with the fact that it may have occurred. So there's a time period that you are severely traumatized before you have answers. Or also the psychological part of it, could it lead to that? I mean, maybe right now they're just, quote unquote, looking at pornography, but it's the continuing on. Could they start acting out, going to topless bars and, and then eventually acting out sexually? Well, and if a woman is required or feels like it's necessary, as it could well be in this situation to have an HIV test, you don't get final answers immediately. So right. you live with the possibility for months. And that 
let's look at some of the criteria for PTSD. And in criteria A, it says the person's response involved intense fear, helplessness, and horror. And I believe that in some situations, the fear could be, could this lead to a sexually transmitted disease? Mm-hmm. And, and, and then in, in reality, that could also lead to a threat to their own life of, could I die because of my partner's sexual behaviors? Right. And, and, and that's really the first criteria for, for assessing for PTSD is a, a feeling of fear or helplessness or horror. The other part of it of looking at PTSD in particular, and I think really what we need to help the listeners understand here is we want to help you understand some of the common symptoms of PTSD. And so you can kind of assess, wow, am I experiencing some of these symptoms? And uh, you look at the second one, basically, is the traumatic event persistently re-experienced in one or more of the following ways, which would include uh, reoccurrent or intrusive thoughts about the event, including images or thoughts or perceptions. And if I was to sit just on that question alone, how many times have you had clients say, I just can't get it out of my mind? Almost inevitably. Exactly. I would agree. And so what happens is these, they start going through the event over and over, and I call it a mind tape. And they just play the tape over and over and over in their mind, and it doesn't come out. The other uh, symptom is uh, recurrent distressing dreams of the event. And, uh, you know, again, how many times have you experienced that is in your clinical offices? Well, that's a common occurrence. And another occurrence is everything that you hear on the radio, everything that you see on TV, interactions between people in general keep the memory right in your face. I mean, my clients will tell me very often, I can't wait until I've had a five-minute period That will be a marker for me when I have a five-minute period that I'm not thinking about this and what it's doing in my life. And and that's how it's showing how frequent it is on their mind. Right. You know, I think it's important that women understand why this happens, why there's that rumination and repetitive thought. Anytime humans experience a traumatic event, whether it's personally or culturally, you take the 9-11 tragedy with the planes flying into the World Trade Center towers. How many times did we see those images repeatedly? You couldn't get away from them if any time you turned on the radio or the TV. And we do that culturally and as a people because we're trying so desperately to make sense of and come to terms with an abnormal event. Right. And just like when we when we injure our bodies, there's swelling, there's an amplification of that part of the body that's been hurt or traumatized. And we do that psychologically as well, that something becomes bigger, it becomes swollen, we repeat it again and again to try to make sense of it and develop a narrative with it that we can live with. But when it's something so abnormal and so huge, it can take a long time to attempt to do that. And there's some situations where we never really make sense of it. Speaking of that 9-11, that has been a marker for me too and how to deal with this because part of what we do is in that trying to make sense of it, we try and find a way to control it or find Mm -hmm. a way that we can make, have an influence over the kind of behavior. And even with children at the time of 9-11, I had many, many children in my office telling me that somehow they could have had an influence over it. And searching for an influence and could have changed it. And so women, in looking at this situation over and over, try and find a way to, if they can't change it, to at least influence it in the future. Great points. You know, there's a a couple other points here. Jill, you were talking about how the mind tries to make sense of it. And one of the things that I've come to understand about the human mind is it has to make sense of everything it experiences. Mm 
the problem with trauma is sometimes it doesn't know how to make sense of that trauma because it's such a violation of what they expected when they made a commitment or a covenant in marriage. Right. And so they're saying, well, what do I do with this information? And it puts it on a hyper arousal state that we'll be talking about a little bit later. And it's trying to solve it and trying to solve it. And when it can't solve it, it typically will do one of two things. It will just kind of shut down go into a depressive state, or it will become aroused and become so anxious that it eventually tries to shut down. And you know, I think what the secondary wound and trauma is with this is that, you know, if a woman, for instance, experienced a murder in her family, there would be an outpouring and an immediate understanding as to why that was traumatic and awful and horrific. But with this problem, culturally, there is so much support and reinforcement for pornography not being a problem. And that is so invalidating to a woman that is so deeply affected by this. And then for her to feel that this is worse and even more painful than a real-life affair, a traditional affair, and then to be told, well, he didn't touch anyone. He was just looking at pictures. There's a secondary wound there where, you know, as I said, if it was murder, everyone would get it. But with this, with pornography, culturally, we are still so torn around this issue that most women feel very isolated and invalidated when they start to share their story. You know, and what's so interesting about that is I received an email from someone recently just on that very concept, Jill. It was basically a woman saying, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And she said when she went to somebody for help, the therapist said, well, I overeat and I've got my own problems. Everybody has their own issues and your husband's issue is just looking at pornography. Yes. Which is so invalidating and, and because it is such a threat to the bond or the marital relationship. But it's a, and it's a common response. And even if that's an out of character, as far as a woman knows that of her partner, that's an out of character response. Often a male will make it a characteristic, typical response to rationalize, to justify, to mitigate the hurt to his partner even. Right. Will tell her that it's a normal thing. Yeah. Well, and, and I, interestingly enough, many men who are involved in pornography, and that's not to say there aren't women involved as well, but the majority that I'm encountering are men that are consuming. And very often they will justify that behavior and rationalize it, saying, well, at least I'm not having an affair. And yet we know from the research, particularly Dr. Jennifer Schneider's research with women with spouses of sex addicts, that the experience of pornography and cyber sex is just as painful, if not more so, than a traditional affair. Yet that's the very justification that's used. And so it's very confusing, Mm -hmm. very invalidating when women do start trying to reach out for help to make sense of it. You know, and I was doing some research on this, on this idea, because when you go back in time and you look at where PTSD originated from, it originated from uh, veterans of uh, the wars that came home, in particular, the Vietnam War. And, And there's been a lot of debate about the diagnosis of PTSD because it encompasses so many different symptoms. And so many different behaviors. But one of the things that I found most interesting is is that they have found that people who continually experience PTSD symptoms, it occurred actually in a relationship, more so, more long-lasting than individuals who actually were in a war or combat. Mm. Which is a very interesting thing because these women, they're starting to show PTSD symptoms. And the problem is they're they're still married to these individuals in many situations. And what happens when sexual intimacy becomes a part of the issue here? Am I safe? Am I not safe? And they literally, every time they see their partner, have to see something that triggers some of those powerful emotions that they that they have. Mm-hmm. 
So, so there's no going home from the war. Yeah. The, the war is in your own That's home. That's right. Yeah, and where do you find that? Where do you find that safety? And, and so you see some women who are saying, "I have no safe place. I don't know where to go." And some of them go to religious leaders. Some of them go to counselors. And quite frankly, I would suggest that many counselors, just like that story I just read earlier, they don't know what to do. I mean, many of the counselors, the religious leaders, they're saying, uh, we don't know how to best help you. Has that been your experience as well? That has absolutely been my experience. And what we see is what we talked about earlier, where there seems to be some support for helping the addict through the addiction and through the addictive process and people shrugging their shoulders saying, kind of, good luck with this. Don't leave your spouse. Give him time to heal. And often there is poor advice given to women in the forms of this is shameful, so don't talk about it. Don't share this. Don't talk to anybody. We know from the work of John Bradshaw how important a benevolent listener is in healing the grief process. And there's no doubt about it. This is an enormous grieving process, even if it goes well from this point on. Yep, exactly. Let me move on. I, w- I want to go through some of these some of these uh, events or some of these uh, symptoms that they may be wanting to look at and say, am I experiencing this? The, the next one is acting or feeling as if the traumatic event were reoccurring, including a sense of reliving the experience. You guys experience that in your clinical work? Sometimes to, even to the point that women will start to have panic attacks. I mean, almost anything in society can set this off. You cannot get away from it. You hear a song that talks about a relationship. You may be thinking about it. You turn on the TV and see professional cheerleaders even may trigger that kind of a thing. And that's what we we call a reaction sequence. Something, a stimulus starts and it ends with a certain behavior. It could be a physiological behavior, but it could also be instant anger. Absolutely. Because what's, go ahead, Jill. I'm sorry. Um, Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that even women that are very well socially connected, meaning they have a good social network to lean on, and very good coping skills with other types of problems. This type of problem, because there's not a lot of information out there yet about it, and everything is a trigger, just like the two of you are saying, women who tend to be very resourceful and connected tend to be very isolated. Everything becomes a trigger. Just leaving their house is a bit of a war zone. Going to the mall just to walk around or go get a cold drink triggers all of those reoccurring thoughts. And you know what's so amazing about this is people who don't have an experience this, they can't necessarily identify with it. I mean, the three of us have seen this in our clinical offices where we have literally seen women become more isolated, pull away from friends and family, and primarily because they don't know what to do with it and their brain is in trauma. And if you're experiencing that, getting to a professional counselor who understands sexual addiction and understands trauma would be a very important thing to do. I think that would be a very good first step to take. I think it's crucial. I don't think this is something that you can effectively go through alone. Even if it's not a professional therapist, there has to be someone to validate your experience. This is a soul-injuring experience for a woman. For a man, very often they will compartmentalize this or think this behavior exists outside of their relationship. But to a woman, this is about the relationship. And until she learns and can work on this and learn differently, it's about her personally. Great point. Going back to the war analogy, if you think of someone being injured in war, There's a reason why we work in platoons and battalions, because a soldier cannot function on his or her own. I come from a military background, so that really resonates with me. We need people that can help drag us out sometimes and support us and attend to some of our wounds that we, at particular times in our lives, are not capable of doing ourselves. If we were healthy and in a different place, 
we would be more than capable of that, but definitely we need support. We need to be able to talk to the benevolent listeners, spiritual supports, professional supports, and truly someone that understands this problem well, that's not going to sugarcoat it or gloss over it. And I guess if you if you know somebody who's dealing with trauma, one of the things that you would want to, if you could give them any advice, it would be just that, to listen and not judge, to try to understand the pain that they're experiencing rather than trying to put your own interpretation on what they're experiencing. More than anything, I think it's listening and validating their pain so they can begin to work through that healing process. Any thoughts on that? If you don't know what else to do with somebody who is suffering this, be with them and be willing to be silent. To let them feel and let them talk it out and let them know that they're not crazy and that they are loved and you'll stay around. You know, that's a very important concept of just trying to understand because I think far too often we, we try to give a solution and I really believe that first of all we have to listen and hear what's being said. You know, let me move on real quick to a couple of other things that deal with the traumatic event and it's being re-experienced. One, it has to do with the psychological distress, which could come about in terms of depression or anxiety. And then the next is a ph- physiological reactivity where they could actually get stomach pain, they could get ulcers, they can have experience headaches, they can stop sleeping. Uh, these are all common symptoms you want to be looking for if you're experiencing a PTSD symptom. I've even had a client in my office that when her husband initially began acting out, she got the hives. A severe case of the highs. And now every time things look like they're not going well, she starts to get the highs. <laughs> but they, there's almost no limit to the physiological signs you can get. Headaches, stomach ache. Some women, upon finding out about this, vomit. Yeah. I mean, it's an immediate, intense physiological reaction. Well, and, and also to highlight some of the very serious coping skills that women are prone to when they find this out. For example, eating disorders. Some women will overeat or undereat and engage in some really destructive eating patterns in an attempt to change how they physically look to compete with pornographic images or a rush into cosmetic surgeries, suicidal thinking or gesturing. Several of the women that I researched had been hospitalized for suicidal attempts or thinking. So it, it can get very serious and we need to be aware of that and make sure that everyone is safe. Which is a great starting point. I I think, and we can't minimize that, that has to be highlighted. I think the first thing that we have to be taking care of is the women who are in that type of trauma and letting them know that if they're experiencing intense psychological issues such as suicidal thoughts, that we need to get them some help. And I really believe that one of the first things we need to do is make sure that they, they may consider medication because that helps them increase the serotonin and helps them see different potential responses rather than just experiencing the trauma. But there's another one thing that often comes up, and that is trying to avoid what's occurred. So I try to avoid my thoughts or the feelings or any conversations having to do with it. And in a sense, it's trying to bury this issue. Have you? Have, have, what has been your experience with this? Well, my experience with this is that women would love to bury it, and there's no way that they can. In the immediate, it's important to live with it. It's important to be real about what's happening and what has happened. Because if we can't be real, then it's really hard to deal and heal and move from there. But you have to be distracted from having experienced in this much pain. There has to be a time or a way that you can put this on the shelf and concentrate or think about something else. When in the work that I do, I focus a lot on helping women understand how to attend to themselves. Women Mm -hmm. are such experts at attending to everyone else around them, especially those significant relationships in the home, children and one's spouse. And when something like this happens, they can sometimes go into 
hyper mode of doing that even more as a way of distracting themselves from their own feelings. And we talked earlier about the importance of finding a benevolent listener, someone that's going to really listen. And I think for many women, learning to take some time to listen to themselves and pay attention to what's going on for them is is difficult to do. And it's difficult to do because the feelings are so intense. And especially for many Christian women that I work with, very intense emotions, especially rage, is a very difficult one because they feel like they shouldn't feel that way or there's something wrong with them if they do. And so just helping women know that it is okay to lean into those feelings and take really exceptionally good care of themselves during this time. And I think many women that I've worked with, they're afraid of their own anger. You know, I because, because it's so out of characteristic for them, and all of a sudden they find themselves in a rage, and they're like, you know, I've actually known women who've actually been, you know, sent to jail and 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 had different experiences because they're so hurt that that anger comes out, and then they feel guilty for it. And one of the things I want to emphasize here is I think we need to let them know that those those emotions are normal, and we need a place to vent that. And I don't recommend that with your spouse, especially initially. But being able to express that anger and that irritability and the hate, and sometimes in the venom, is important part. You know, it's really important, and research has shown us time and time again that writing is particularly helpful. You can write anything. Hide your writing if you have to. Write anything. I've had women poke holes in pages for the first few days of their writings and scribble and write bad words and and vent some of this anger. You can burn it later. You can keep it to validate your experiences. That can also be helpful with the obsessing about the events. Sometimes if you write down the details of the events, you can say to your own mind and to yourself, I have validated myself. I have been real about what's happening. So I don't have to continue to keep them in my mind. But writing is particularly helpful. You know, I have, I've found, that's been my experience as well. And in the research that I had done with women, 76% of them found that reading was a real lifeline for them because they could do it privately. No one had to know what they were reading or when. And in their quiet moments, they could turn to that. And some of the most effective reading that occurred during that time was reading about anger. And uh, one of my favorites is The Dance of Anger by Harriet Lerner. And just sometimes reading about those intense feelings and how other people have coped is a very validating and eye-opening experience to get some ideas of how to use that anger to clarify what the next steps need to be in one's life. And also, when you do that and you can pull it off, So that instead of acting out with rage, you can come up with something productive to do or something to accomplish using that rage. That's the beginning of a woman to be self-empowered again. Exactly. Well, I love Harriet Lerner's statement that anger is a tool for change when it challenges us to become more of an expert on the self and less of an expert on others, where we use that to really help define what are some of the boundaries we need because anger is almost always a reflection of a boundary that's been violated. And in this case, pornography and sexual addictions attacks. It just assaults the very soul of a marriage and the soul of a woman. So it's important to use that rage to clarify what do the limits have to be in order for me to feel safe. Great points. Very often along those same lines, I will have my clients sit down together and say, what must happen to keep this marriage and relationship intact? And what would I like to have it happen to make it better? Mm-hmm. So they can reestablish some of those boundaries 
and they can be the ones in charge of saying this and this must happen. You know, and, and as you talk about that, that's something that we'll be talking about in the second or third class that we're going to be doing on this topic is how to establish appropriate boundaries mm-hmm. because it's so critical for women to know how to respond, how to protect themselves with boundaries and what should I do? And I, I equate this to building a bridge because many women, when they come to us, they don't know where to even start. And our hope is in doing these classes for you is that you, we will be able to teach you how to cross that bridge in a more effective and healthy way because what we've learned is the urgency earlier you deal with this, the less likely it is the trauma is going to carry over into sometimes months and even years. Because if you hide the issue, if you try to ignore it, what I equate this to is trying to shove the issue in the corner and just trying to avoid it. And the longer we do that, it really never does go away. For just a second, I'd like to go back to something Dr. Manning said, because I think we need to hit it a little bit harder. And that is, what are the things that women do to nurture themselves? Because very often in my office, I will say, what do you do that makes you feel good? And they can't come up with a single idea that they have done. So they've got to find some things and even making a list of when I feel rage or when I feel terrible discouragement or depression or anxiety. I can go to my list that I've made. It can be go get a Coke with a friend, go get a massage, take a hot bath, exercise, whatever things are nurturing to them that they normally wouldn't treat themselves to or take care of themselves with, this is a good time. That's a manicure time. Yes. And and a a good (laughs) guide with some of that is I really believe within every problem is the seed of the solution as well. So, for example, if someone really feels that anger and rage or the, the trauma of this very physically, then we may need to find some physical outlets that are nurturing and self-caring. Joining a particular sport league or an aerobics class or a yoga class, something that physically can attend to how that anger and upset is coming out. Or if it's more of a spiritual, just really being internalized and feeling despair, that we may need to find some spiritual practices or new beliefs that can nurture. So I I think it's important that because someone else's list may not affect us at all. So we really personalize that and really listen to what's going on to our, our mind, our spirit, our body, and how can that be a guide for those things that we do, just as Shondell just said, to attend to ourselves. You know, I gave a woman an assignment on this very topic just last week. And uh, actually two weeks ago, and she came back last week, and it was so fascinating to listen to her. She said, yeah, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. She mm-hmm. said, I, I sat, and I all week long, I thought, and I thought, and I talked to my husband, and I thought, and I thought, and she said it was so hard. And finally she came in, and she was literally excited. She said, these are five things I want to do. I'm going to run a marathon. Awesome. And she said, I, I'm, I'm going to do it. And her energy was just up. And I thought, you know, if you're willing to pay the price, but she, you know, there's something we need to mention here. At the beginning stages, I'm not sure that this is possible for some women. D- does that make sense? Because I, I believe that we're asking them to heal. And right now they may not be ready. Right. And so I don't want to be- push them on that. That's, that's something that occurs because some people literally they have a markedly diminished interest in participating in, in activities. And so there's going to be a time frame where they're going to feel the pain. And then these are suggestions that help them when they begin that, to want that healing process or feel like, okay, okay I, I, I can do it now. And it takes great energy to do that. It takes great energy just to grieve this. So now is a good time upon finding out about this problem or having this problem confront your marriage or your relationship, now is the perfect time 
to simplify your life. I often tell women, go to Costco, get a big pile of paper plates, paper cups, buy some prepared meals, because what you're going through takes a lot of energy. Well, and Shondell, I loved how you used the word grieve. We've talked a bit about anger and rage, but we haven't talked a lot about sadness and loss. And there is such a loss of power initially, feeling helpless and feeling like this is totally out of your control, a loss of dreams, and a loss of the marriage you thought you had. There's loss on so many levels, and it does. It takes time to grieve what the new reality is and and what the reality is you've lost. And that point is so valid because I've talked to so many women and you say, What is it that you want? Well, I want this to not have happened. Mm. That's what I want. And no one can ever give that to me again. So we've got to adjust and move forward. But there's a lot of grief and loss involved in that. And I think if we're looking stage-wise, once at discovery, I think we're going to see a lot of these PTSD symptoms that we've discussed today. That could be anything from reliving it to trying to avoid it. And then sometimes the increased arousal of anger and irritability, difficulty in concentrating. Sometimes even you, you can't sleep or you're having difficulty in staying, you know, you just can't, you can't focus on anything. And so these are some of the common symptoms that women experience and men in some situations. But What is the process? So initially the trauma, then what would you say next? What should they expect? The grief process is part of the next section. Mm -hmm. Trying to decide what to do to move on. Do you want to stay in the relationship? Do you want to work it out? If so, how are you going to do that? What's your outline? What's your plan? To have experienced a trauma is one thing, but to live in constant fear that you're going to re-experience the trauma is another thing. Which is why I think it's so important that uh, in the next couple of classes we'll be talking about establishing boundaries because one of our assumptions may be is if you're going to stay in a marriage, what are those behaviors going to be and what should you expect from your spouse or your partner? Because it, many times you don't know what to do. Well, and Kevin, I think another important point that goes back to something you asked us early on, you know, what's the difference between women that get hit really, really hard with this discovery or disclosure and women that somehow are able to just... It's still devastating, but they cope better with it, for lack of a better word. Um, I think women that have experienced traumas previously, for example, sexual abuse, rape, a life-threatening experience through illness or a death or whatnot, those women particularly, I, I worry and am very concerned for as a clinician because this kind of an experience will reactivate many of those feelings of violation, helplessness, being out of control. And so especially for women that have experienced past traumas, boy, oh boy, do we need to connect them with professional help that is a understands this issue well and also is very mindful of trauma and how that can be helped along. I I don't think it's realistic to expect someone to do that on their own. And, you know, Jill, I actually did some research on this just because I was trying to understand, you know, what are the most predictors of PTSD? And and they've identified seven specific ones, and I'd like to make that list right now available to everybody. The first is that you have a history of at least one or other trauma prior to this new experience. The second one is a psychological adjustment prior to the traumatic event because sometimes people are dealing with other issues before they experience this new trauma. Third is their family history. The fourth is a perceived life threat during the traumatic event. So that might be going to the doctor and discovering that you might have an STD. Another one, the fifth, is a high level of emotion during or immediately after 
the traumatic event. And that can come from a spouse blaming you or absolutely denying the fact that they've been there. And that can tr- trigger more trauma because they're sitting there or they're, if they're blaming you saying, well, if you would have done this and you would have done this and you would have done that, I wouldn't have gone there. I wouldn't have done this. The next is a disassociative pattern. In other words, they start to disassociate during the trauma because their mind is so overwhelming that their mind can't make sense of it that they disassociate from it. So th- those are actually the list of things that they have found that are most common PTSD indicators uh, that it could cur- uh, carry on and become a full-blown PTSD experience. Kevin, could you explain to the listeners, because they're not clinicians, what dissociation means? You know, dissociation is when you take an experience and your mind just goes to a safe place. It, I mean, it can't analyze it. It can't make sense of it. So it, again, disassociates. It pulls away from the experience. And it literally, they may not have any recollection of what's occurred during an argument or a fight because it's so traumatic to the mind that they will literally create a safe place in their mind where they go. With some of my clients, I use the zone out if they're not even hearing what's being said to them. They, they might be nodding their head during a conversation and not hear a word. That's a dissociation. That's, a, that's what we're talking about. And, you know, I think there's another factor, at least in the work that I've done, that I've seen influence how this problem affects a woman, and that is whether she discovered the problem or whether it was disclosed to her. They both are devastating, but when a woman is the one to find out, she finds something on the internet or finds a receipt or walks in and actually sees infidelity firsthand, there is an extra element of trauma with that, just the deep, deep betrayal of stumbling across a massive lie versus having a partner come to us and in whatever form that comes out, we are told we are somehow trusted with that information that our spouse has made a very serious mistake for a very long period of time or a couple of times. And there's, in my research, I found that 87% of the women who had had that problem disclosed to them, the spouse had come to them and told them directly, 87% of those women were able to then view their spouse as a support down the road. Whereas the women that discovered it, that was such a breach and a betrayal that they saw their husband, someone as an enemy, someone that could not be trusted and did not see him as a source of support in the healing process at all. That's a very important point. Am I discovering it or is it something that I have to or that they're coming to and tell me? And I think when someone comes to us and tells us, you know, this has been a problem for me, there is a healing part to that because it begins the honesty process that is required in the long-term healing. And there's less fear about future misbehavior. Right. So you're required to be, I mean, in a woman's eyes, you're required to be less hypervigilant if it was disclosed to you than if you had to find out. One of the big risks is to become a detective of your, of your spouse and their behavior and to feel like now your life has changed because you've got to figure out what they're doing. Yeah. Now, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, we've, got, we've got a few minutes left today. If if you are in a situation where someone comes to you and they says, "How do I begin this healing process, and what should I expect time-wise? How do I begin the healing process, and what should I expect time-wise?" How would you both respond to that? Well, I would say it was an individual response, but it's going to take some time. Some people have this year idea in mind. This is something that you will think about, that you will deal with on and off throughout your life. What you hope is that it becomes, and what we're working for, is that the hole that you fall into when you're traumatized by this is not as deep. You have a growing confidence that you know how to get out of it and to move through it. So give them hope, 
help them understand that it's normal in the abnormal situation that we're talking about, I would encourage them to see a therapist. I would encourage them to talk to a physician about medication so we don't get stuck with an obsessive disorder around this. And I would encourage them to find at least one friend that would be a benevolent listener that's not in the professional field. And what are your thoughts, Dr. Manning? Well, there is an acronym that came that I used that came out of the research I did with wives, and that's CAVED, C-A-V-E-D. And I think that's a really useful one because we do feel caved in, we feel, or that we're holed up in a cave with this problem. And the C in CAVED stands for connection, that it is so important for women to connect, even with one person, as Dr. Knowlton just said, where there's an outlet, some release, and and linking arms with someone other than ourselves. The A is an advocate, that we find someone that can really help us stand up for ourselves. When someone is so traumatized and just bruised, that person that in another situation would have been very resourceful and empowered and, and fully able to handle themselves. With this type of a problem, we're not always able to do that right away. And so whether that is a ecclesiastical leader, a family member, a lawyer, someone that we can trust that really helps us stand up for ourselves. The V is validation, to find someone including ourselves, that can validate the experience. E is education. Try to find out more about this problem. And that's scary because we feel like, oh, we know everything we ever wanted to know and didn't want to know. But find some good reading material. There is good material out there for women specifically. And sometimes the education process can have a a calming effect. And then D, direction. Have either a support group, an ecclesiastical leader, friend, family member, or professional therapist that can help give some direction to this process. It's too overwhelming just to do on your own. So that CAVED acronym, I hope that can be of use. That's really helpful. a guide that I use in in making sure that women have a variety of components to the healing. You know, and one of the one of the core things that you just discussed is there's there's a reaching out here. I, I'm concerned that when women start to isolate themselves, what they don't do is what you just described. And another thing that they stop doing is they stop eating and taking care of themselves physically, which the brain needs in terms of just getting adequate sleep. Try and and I know that's very difficult in the initial stage. But in the healing process, I found that sleep, uh, sometimes medication and eating well are are very, very important. And when I say well, it's so easy to go to things that are, are unhealthy. Or not eat at all. And both of those are need to be dealt with in an appropriate way. Because if, if you're eating well and you're sleeping, your brain has more possibility of seeing other ways to respond in a healthy manner. And it's just so important to be patient. And that's such a hard thing. I'm not a patient person by nature, so I give that preface. But it really is key. And because I find very many women are rushing to try to forgive even though they really don't fully understand yet what it is they're forgiving. And then it becomes cheap forgiveness. And just really being patient that it's okay to feel rage and anger. In fact, those are going to be some of the best teachers for redefining a new reality. Really being clear that any religious beliefs aren't being twisted into something they're not. For example, forgiving and forgetting. Physiologically, we're not designed to forget traumatic events in our lives. But hopefully in time, as Shondell put, that that will become less deep and less scary. One of the ways that I do that in terms of understanding the time process is I tell people this. Write down the five things that you think about the most today. 
just get, make a list of the five things that you're thinking about. And, and oftentimes, one, two, three, and four, and five are the same thing because it's always on their mind. But what I tell them is, is you watch this over time in the next few weeks, maybe the next couple months, it may be up to six months. You write this down in the next three to four to five, six months, you will begin thinking about different things. And that is a pretty good sign that you are beginning to heal is that other things begin to enter your mind. And so it's just an exercise that I have them write down. And I say one of the things, our goals is to get you thinking about things that are going to be, that you're going to enjoy, things that would be helpful that we've already discussed earlier in the show today. One client of mine once told me that she had been advised to get through this and that it was important for her to get through this with grace and dignity. And as we go through this process, we understand it's not about getting through it with grace and dignity. It's about getting through it. And so there's a lot of guilt associated sometimes with traumatic responses. They need to be normalized. They need to understand that they're normal and that it's okay to get through it. And we decided to work through it like an alley cat rather than with grace and dignity. And it was important that we come through it, even if we had a patch of hair missing and an ear bit off, that we be tenacious about our healing, that we were going to stick with it. And it didn't matter that we look like a ballerina coming through that process. Great point. Sometimes we don't, there's, no, there's no set answer in how to do this. I mean, realistically, how one person goes through this process, another person may find a totally different way to do it that works. But I think there are some core elements, making sure that you're meeting your own needs, making sure that you know how to respond to a partner. Because sometimes that partner, if they're denying or blaming, you can't begin the healing process. And and we're going to be talking more about that next time as we talk about how to take the right stand. Because sometimes women say, well, what should I do with my partner? I mean, how can I tell that they're beginning to change? And so that will be what we're going to be talking about next time, taking the right stand. How how should I respond? In the third class, we'll be talking about how to find inner peace in times of trial. And we're going to talk about the solutions for the broken heart. So you can begin to nourish that inner self. And we'll spend quite a bit of in-depth time on that. And now uh, the fourth class, we'll talk about your relationship. And, and now what? Now what are you going to do in your relationship? And just in closing, we've got about a minute left. What I want to say is this. We have created an online assessment to assess the potential trauma that you're going through. I invite you to go take that. If you'll do that, uh, that will help you assess with some feedback that we've written for you. Dr. Knowlton, Dr. Manning, I want to thank you so much, and we'll look forward to uh, the second, third, and fourth classes. Thank you so much for your time today. You are welcome. You're welcome. Thank you, and uh, you women who are out there struggling, we're here to help you. We're going to do it. Cross the bridge. Thank you for listening. Thank you.